Jeremy Hardy speaks to the nation. A classic serial like Weetabix, in which literary heroine and radio crack Jeremy Hardy answers the questions lesser spotted woodpeckers are too bird-like to ask. This week, how to define oneself in terms of regional, cultural and geopolitical identity without tears. Thank you, Peter Donaldson, the man with the loveliest voice in broadcasting. A real port and brandy, whiskey, cider, bitter, bloody merry and grosh of an RP brogue. How we define ourselves is, of course, affected by how others see us, and on radio, by how we sound. People are stereotyped because of their accents. To assist me this evening, I'm joined by two people who have accents. I, of course, don't. I'm normal. Please welcome <laughs> Susan Murray and Murray Hunter. Hello. Hello. Now, Murray, confusingly, your first name is the same as Susan's last name, which is the only time that's happened since my guests were Ross Kemp and Diana Ross. Right. <laughs> oh, and I'm yeah. forgetting uh, Fluella Benjamin and Benjamin Netanyahu. <laughs> yeah, but... And there was Arnold Schwarzenegger and soul singer P.P. Arnold, most famous for her 1967 version of the Cat Stevens song, The First Cut is the Deepest. Yeah, thing is... They're spelt differently. See, I'm M-O-R-A-Y. And I'm M-U-R-R-A-Y. But pronounced the same. Well, Murray, it's pronounced Murray, where I'm from. God, the BBC never used to have these problems. <laughs> well, of course, pronunciation is what accents are all about. And, Susan, you've done a great deal of research into accents for your one-woman show about the subject, The Glottal Stops Here. I have, yes. So what are the reasons for preconceptions about different accents? Well, that's a complicated question, but I've spent a lifetime finding out what is Britain's most hated accent every time I open my mouth. <laughs> Interesting theory, but can you substantiate it? I can. Bath University did an experiment in which they got people to judge the intelligence and gravitas of different accents, and silence scored higher than mine. <laughs> And it tops the poll for not only the thickest sounding, but also the most untrustworthy accent in the UK. Well, we've only got your word for that, and you're obviously an idiot. <laughs> why, why do people find your accent untrustworthy? It's what's called an uplifter. It's singy-songy, uncertain. Yeah, but that's quite nice. It's, it's like an offering. So is a goat that's been stabbed to death by a Satanist. <laughs> I see. So what's a popular accent? Well, the accent thought of as sounding most intelligent and reliable is, well done, Murray... The east of Scotland. Thank you very much. So, Murray, having one of Britain's most beloved accents surely makes up for being dragged into constant wars and living under a party you don't vote for. Oh, yes. <laughs> you must be very proud. Quietly proud, Jeremy. As you can hear, my accent is in no way brash or hubristic. No, it's learned but not smug. Wise and reassuring. Authoritative but comforting. That's why we make good doctors. I suppose so, yes. <laughs> You can pop your clothes back on now. Must have just taken them off without noticing. That's, that's extraordinary. That's like hypnotism. You're actually, you arrived at the studio like that. Are you off your meds again? Cover yourself up, man. You've got visitors. I'm sorry, Susan. That's OK. I'm just happy listening to your voice. You can do your blouse up now. <laughs> anyway, uh, Susan, with a name like Murray, are you of Scottish descent? I am. My parents are Glaswegian, but that accent is seen as aggressive. Can you let go of me nuts? <laughs> Sorry, it's a reflex. OK. Yeah, perhaps that'll teach you to keep your trousers on. Oh, says the man who wears a plaid miniskirt with no knickers to weddings where small children are present. <laughs> 
I suppose you'd better tell us, Murray, now it's all over. How do you feel about not being independent? Well, sad in one way. It would be nice to be free of Westminster. But I'm not sure East Finchley is ready to go it alone. Ah, you live in England, so you didn't get to vote. No, but someone from East Finchley at a Scottish university could. Yeah, but they'd have been too pissed. Young English livers aren't as resilient as your people's. Well, let's look again at stereotypes and accents later on. Ah, don't let Glaswegian catch you looking at it, for God's sake. Fair point. <laughs> now, of course, there are multiple languages as well as multiple accents in Britain, and that's not a problem. Yes, if I'm in people's company and they can all speak English but start speaking a language I don't understand, that's rude, but not as rude as what they're saying about me. <laughs> Does it bother me the way it bothers Nigel Farage if I'm on a train and I can't understand the conversations of others? No, it's a relief. I'm not interested and I shouldn't be listening. If I can't understand speech, it's just a not unpleasant burbling sound. If people on a train are speaking German, like Farage's wife, I might get jumpy, because I grew up watching war films. I'm afraid I'll have to show my forged Belgian travel documents. <laughs> But generally, being unable to understand strangers means I can read my paper in peace. That's why I like world music. I don't know what they're singing so I can concentrate on something else. <laughs> it might be a vile genocidal ballad, but to me it's just life-affirming background noise. <laughs> People say they find the American accent grating, but it isn't. The problem with Americans is you can understand what they're saying. <laughs> same goes for us. Have you listened to conversations in English on trains? I said to Clive he'd better sharpen his act up or he's for the high jump. Property's a tough game. We work hard, we play hard, and if you can't stay out of the kitchen, don't heat the stable. So did you go running to HR? That's the trouble. Everyone's so PC nowadays. Read in the Metro that a bloke from Basing so cast for black coffee in fleet services. Got 17 years? Uh, I'm not surprised. They're locking up old men for what used to be considered playful molestation. <laughs> it's all ancient history. Honestly, you keep someone in a dungeon for 10 years, they escape and then they go crying to the police. Absolute minefield. You can't say anything in the office. You can't even belittle a female colleague without being accused of discrimination. No offence. None taken. I'm not one of these she-males. Glad to hear that. Speaking of which, remember that encounter you had in Bangkok with what you thought was a woman? She is a woman. We're getting married on Thursday. <laughs> if DHL don't mess up. It's not migrants who make me feel like a foreigner in my own country. It's people who speak a different language in English. More of that later. The only reason people find it odd that different languages are spoken in the UK is that we're obsessed with nationality. But we have a number of indigenous languages and we're made up of three sort of countries and part of another country. I tend to the view that the nation-state was always a bad idea. But I'm in a luxurious position to say that because I have a state. I just mean this one. I'm not ruler of an underwater kingdom I haven't told you about. <laughs> I'm a British citizen of British descent securing what is still the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. It's very easy for me to pontificate pompously about nationhood. So here goes. <laughs> People who don't have the right to national self-determination are likely to want it. Tamils, Tibetans, Basques, Kurds, Palestinians. And to take one of the most talked about territorial disputes of our age, the State of Israel came about because some Jewish people wanted somewhere that a widely persecuted, dispersed, ethno-religious group could have a national home. 
Sadly, one of the things that shapes our identities is other people being bastards to us. <laughs> My friend Diane's grandmother once told her, if you ever forget you're Jewish, someone will remind you. She also, on her deathbed in Leeds General Infirmary, told Jimmy Savile to f*** off. So it was clearly, was clearly a woman of foresight and wisdom. <laughs> Zionism was a mixture of secular nationalism, religious separatism and desperation. The main problem with the plan was that the place chosen already had people living there. Palestine was ruled by Turkey until the First World War, after which it fell under British colonial administration. Yes, I'm afraid it's another one of ours. We, who have been responsible for so many partitions and nearly got our comeuppance last week. The first British governor of Jerusalem, Sir Ronald Storrs, described the idea of the new Jewish homeland as a little loyal Jewish Ulster in a sea of potentially hostile Arabism. A prescient warning you might think, but this was a man speaking in favour of the idea. And the British encouraged significant Jewish migration on taking charge. There is the narrative that Palestine had been an empty wasteland, which is a lie. Yes, the new arrivals were industrious. You're not going to get that many people turn up from Poland without seeing a lot more construction than the British would get. <laughs> but there were already Palestinian towns, villages and farms, mosques and churches that had been there for centuries. Nevertheless, even some of Israel's most passionate critics today are people who supported its founding in 1948. They argue that although Israeli governments are increasingly racist and colonial, the founding principles were noble. Other critics would see even that view as rosy spectacled, but whatever you think about that period, the state of Israel exists. And one of the frequent demands of its government is that others recognize its right to exist. I'm not sure any state has rights. Whether a person has rights is a moral question. They're not like kidneys. But at least ethical judgments apply more sensibly to human beings than to geopolitical entities. We'd all say a person has a right to a home. We wouldn't say the home has rights. No one thinks a house has a right to exist. Certainly not an Israeli driving a bulldozer. <laughs> Let's imagine that all Israel's critics recognising its right to exist as a de facto state. That wouldn't guarantee its continued existence in its present form or any other. Even now, we don't even know where its borders are supposed to be, so what are we ratifying? That's what happens when you're greedy. You keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. People have trouble recognising you. <laughs> and there might be a two-state or one-state solution over time. States come and go. Yugoslavia doesn't exist. It lasted 70 years and broke up disastrously on ethnic lines. Czechoslovakia lasted about the same length of time and split peacefully on ethnic lines. But Belgium was formed 140 years ago and still exists, if you can call it that. <laughs> The Israeli government further complicates matters by insisting the country is not only recognised as a state, but as a Jewish state. But most Jewish people don't live there, thankfully, because we need them. One of the most popular voices on Radio 4 is that of Michael Rosen, the non-Zionist Jewish poet and children's author. It would have been our loss if his parents had decided to raise him in Israel rather than North London. And what a horrible book we're going on a bear hunt might have been. <laughs> might have died on the pretext of the one he was looking for. <laughs> Moreover, many Israelis have only a little Jewish ancestry, or none, even without the occupied territories. A fifth of the population is Palestinian, and demographics change, and ideas about who we are change. So what about us, here and now? What if Scotland had left the UK? Or does in future? Or Wales leaves? Or Northern Ireland? We already let the South go, and they're the ones we like. <laughs>
What if England is one day left on our own? Will we be sold to America as Walt Disney's Cockney World of Adventures? <laughs> States and borders are made by people, and isn't it time we grew out of drawing lines on maps like bored school children? The world would be a far more peaceful place if Foreign Office staff had contented themselves with drawing pudenda on portraits of reigning monarchs instead of carving up the world from a desk in Whitehall. Israel-Palestine is one very fraught example, but not the only example of how perceived rights conflict. In the referendum, the right to be Scottish and the right to be British were pitted against each other. And if it had gone through, Murray, you'd be foreign now. True, a retrospective immigrant. That'd be OK, though. I'd get to add to Britain's rich cultural diversity without the faff of moving. <laughs> You've got me thinking now. Maybe I should be starting some sort of festival. <laughs> right, thank you, thank you. If I could bring this meeting to order. As a community leader among London's vibrant Scottish diaspora... What was that word? Uh, diaspora, it means... No, I know that one. Vibrant, what does that mean? <laughs> it means, uh, well... It's the opposite of normal. <laughs> anyway, I think it's time we make our presence felt with our own carnival. Will it involve a lid display of thighs and jiggling body parts? Uh, there will be kilts, yes. <laughs> but it won't be some Englishman's idea of who we are. I'm no one's Uncle Tam. <laughs> It'll be a proud display of a modern Scots identity. We're about more than tartan and haggis. Will there be no haggis? Of course there'll be haggis. People will have to eat. But there'll be other configurations of oats and innards too. And it's not just about our cuisine. It'll be about our athletic prowess and music, old and new. Aye, food, sport and music, the three keys to being tolerated by the English. We also need a high-profile name to open it. Have you tried Andy Murray? Tried him? I couldn't get him off the phone. <laughs> no, no, that cheeky chappy thing might appeal to the English, but it will just irritate our people. <laughs> we, we need someone less chirpy, you know? <laughs> Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> oh, he's long dead, Murray. Oh, perfect. I'll call his agent. <laughs> now, uh, moving on to the Treasurer's report, Angus. Total outgoings for the year ended April. Three pounds and seventy-four pence. <laughs> if people in Scotland had chosen separation, in future, I'd be a foreigner in Scotland, part of my own country. But then I don't mind being foreign. Might make me more rhythmic. And the fact that I refer to this... <laughs> the fact that I refer to this as my own country is telling. I'm a citizen, but it's not mine. It's owned by dukes and pension funds. National identity is very much projection. Our idea of our nation reflecting ourselves. Nationhood can be built around an ethnic group, but what is ethnicity? No disrespect to anyone's culture, because I've got one as well. But what does it really mean beyond a language, some tunes and the odd recipe? Speaking of food, Israelis famously insist the falafel is their national dish. Now, you can lay claim to a 2,000-year-old war, but that's just taking the piss. <laughs> of course, falafels have always been eaten by Middle Eastern Jews. They were Middle Eastern people. That underlines the differences between those Jews and the Europeans who came to the region. And yes, we white Britons say the curry is our national dish, but we say it in a self-mocking way that acknowledges and thanks the various cultures that have improved ours. 
tours. We don't say it to celebrate the lasting trauma we brought to the Indian subcontinent. <laughs> well, the BNP claims we invented curry during the Raj, but they are founded on an ideology that gave quite a boost to the idea that Europe's Jews might be safer in a Middle Eastern hotspot. <laughs> The BNP might hate the fact, but Britain changes, and always has. We hear doom-laden predictions about our becoming less and less purely British. But even if we all interbreed, you'll still be able to read Dickens and visit churches and go online to learn how to make toad in the hole. The National Trust won't be called the Jihadi Gift Shop and Wool Garden Militia. <laughs> of a British town might seem very Somali or very Polish, but to Somali and Polish people, they seem very British. If you're a British person of British descent, you don't even notice how British Britain is. You think it's normal that we're so weird. <laughs> and Britishness doesn't just mean one thing. We're a union, brothers and sisters, and people tip up here from all over. London is one of the greatest cities in the world. Of course migrants come here. I'm one of them. I moved to London from Surrey in 1982. <laughs> Journey of only 40 miles, but I was forced to leave Surrey because I was at risk of suicide. <laughs> and as so many migrants do, I now resent new migrants moving to what I now consider my patch. Other middle-class media people making the same journey and diluting the authentic Afro-Caribbean character of the Brixton area. <laughs> buy a plantain and find a pop-up locally sourced restaurant where a Caribbean veg shop used to be. <laughs> I look around me thinking, this area seeing some changes. You could be in downtown Guildford. <laughs> but you can't demand that everyone stays where they grew up. If I'd stayed in Surrey, I would now be a constituent of Michael Gove. And I think that alone gives me the right to indefinite leave to remain. <laughs> we're from or where we are is not all we are, nor do we belong to just one group. My identity is human, Anglophone, European, British and English. I'm a Londoner, raised in Surrey, born in Hampshire. I'm aged 53, enjoy walking and conversation, good sense of humour, although I'm not seeking a female 22 to 25 for companionship and long-term nursing needs. <laughs> sorts of things connect us to other people. We might be of a similar age or social background, do the same job, like something, or have the same sexual preference or religion or opinion. We might have loads of stuff in common with someone and agree about absolutely everything, or we might just be in the same relationship. <laughs> but of course people have things in common. Ethnicity is not the only thing you can share. You can order the meze platter for two, or burble on about your problems to people who try to look interested. <laughs> and your origins might be the only thing you have in common. I can't say I'm especially drawn to people from a similar locality. You can have a laugh about fleet services, but then you've got to find some depth. <laughs> some of the people I love have completely different backgrounds. I'm not trying to make myself out to be an amazing globe-trotting cosmopolitan who can sit cross-legged in a Berber encampment and somehow communicate through a shared love of sand. <laughs> Language is hugely important. When we know what each other are saying, we realise we're all talking the same cobblers and no one's plotting anything. And I'm also self-aware enough to know that I am objectively 
incredibly British. That's not said with pride or shame. It was none of my doing that I'm British. But I suppose I have some control over how British I am. I could make more effort to combat my awkwardness and emotional inarticulacy, but I haven't, because not getting round to things is another important part of my culture. <laughs> What strikes me about our history is not how rapidly we assembled the greatest empire the world has ever seen, but how long it took us to realise that it was quite invasive. <laughs> of course, sometimes I do feel national pride or shame, proud of the health service, ashamed of arms exports, but that's because I'm part of the political process. And the pride or shame is not in me, but in us. I do feel a connection to other British people, whatever their origins. But when they don't share my pride or shame, that's what I mean by speaking a foreign language in English. If they want to privatise the NHS, they're alien. Not only might they want to conduct an anal probe, they'll charge me for it as well. <laughs> Conservatives say that because of devolution, Scottish MPs shouldn't vote on matters related to the health service in England. I think the rule should be you can't vote on anything to do with the NHS unless you recognise its right to exist. But what about my cultural connections? I do feel at home eating chips on a rainy pier in a sleepy English seaside town until I go in the gift shop that defiantly sells gullywogs. <laughs> what amazes me is that people still feel so confident in sharing their racism, especially when they themselves are of an ethnic minority. I'm thinking, you're taking a hell of a lot for granted here. Not only do you assume I'm a bigot, you're also hoping that I have favourites and that top of my list is you. <laughs> and I'm not buying the line that says... Oh, come on, don't we all gravitate towards people who are like us? No, we don't. Initially, in an unfamiliar setting, perhaps, if I were in the Andes and I saw someone reading a book called The History of Fleet Services, <laughs> I'd probably strike up conversation. We always look for points of contact. And then I'd find he was a Norwegian trying to improve his English. Foreigners make much more effort than we do. It's truly touching the way someone in whatever part of the globe will say falteringly, I come to England, I hope. Uh, one day. Uh, my uh, cousin is uh, having shop in England. I visit him. Uh, please, is it a very beautiful place, Wolverhampton? <laughs> and you say? Uh, well, it's different. <laughs> what about class? Am I drawn to people who come from exactly the same substratum of the lower to middle middle class as I do? Well, it would be interesting if I could find one. We ate salad cream, but my dad made his own mayonnaise for special occasions. No other family in the world has that. <laughs> and we were of different classes within our own family. We climbed socially, so I was the poshest of five. And then I moved to South London, age 21, and now the rest of Surrey's come to find me. <laughs> and being lower middle class, I suffer from sympathetic accent syndrome, the subconscious urge to blend that makes people involved lapse into the accent of whoever they're speaking to. My mum did it. We had cousins come to stay from Holland and my mum would say, would you like some breakfast? And I'd say, mum, that's not even Dutch, you're just talking funny. <laughs> in Holland, Dutch people speak Dutch. They don't speak English in a foreign accent as though they were in a war film. <laughs> and I do what my mum did. In case you felt it was racist of me to attempt a Jamaican accent earlier, I can only tell you it's the sort of thing I would inadvertently do in real life. 
If I'm talking to John, who fixes my car, and he says, your hair gasket's gone, Jeremy, instead of saying, as I should, my darling man, I have absolutely no idea what you're saying. <laughs> instead of that, I'm like, as it, me ain't gasket. Bloody hell, you're having a laughing, sir. Come here, hey, gasket, I'll have you, you little bleeder. And then, if I'm speaking to someone who's upper middle class, I become fantastically RP and say fewer all the time, even when it's wrong. Are you going to the Henry Moore exhibition? I think you mean the Henry Fewer exhibition. <laughs> uh, but Jeremy, that confusion doesn't arise in a Scottish accent. You see, with a double O, we would say Henry Moore or Roger Moore. But with one O, we'd say Kenneth Moore. And we have more vowel sounds and... We have better R's. You certainly have, Dr. Hunter. <laughs> you say the bird heard a word. And we say the bird heard a word. <laughs> we say, oh, I'm away the new. And you say, please don't leave. We'll do anything. We're better together. <laughs> you can have tax-raising powers. Just don't go. We'll be no use without you. <laughs> and we say, all right, calm down for God's sake. Have some self-respect, man. <laughs> Look, I, I don't want any trouble. Uh, my accent is not threatening, remember? It's reassuring. And don't you ever forget it. <laughs> yeah, he's the one with the popular accent. It's me who's stuck with a thick, lying, prol voice. OK, well, let's stay with this theme. Now, Susan, uh, do you think the reason for the unpopularity of your accent is class? Of course, that's why people treat you as being authoritative and me as I've got concussion. Well, obviously you're from the Midlands, but where exactly? Well, a lot of people think I'm from Birmingham. A lot of people think I'm from Birmingham. That's because you've got a horrible whining nasal voice. Oh. <laughs> I haven't, because I speak in the beautiful, much misunderstood dialect of the black country. It's the accent people approximate to when they attempt to do Brummie. But it's totally different, and Brummie is just an accent, whereas black country is a dialect with all sorts of words from Anglo-Saxon. Like the verb to be, we say bin and bis, which are obviously German. But stripped of its more sinister quality. What about uh, any Viking influence? Nah, they got as far as Wednesbury, built Ikea, then buggered off. <laughs> In fact, black country is very pure old English. We survived the Norman invasion and the Great Vowel Shift. I had one of them this morning. <laughs> Concentrate. Sorry. Between Chaucer's time and Shakespeare, a fashion started in London where all the good fellows like Bath and Bus went a bit crap and became Bath and Bus. Now, Shakespeare was one of my lot, but he probably went a bit theatrical in London, which would have made for interesting conversations when he came home and walked into his local in Stratford-upon-Avon. And I believe we have an actual transcript of one such conversation. <laughs> we have. Moray, here we go. All right, Bab, how was that there, London? Oh, darling, it was marvellous. It was what? Marvellous. So you mean busting? What's happened to your accent, Bill? <laughs> it's William from now on. I think I've found the real me. Well, I think the real you is a nonce. You can't come in here talking like that. Go on, get out on it, you bard. Why, thank you. <laughs> wow, it's as though the actual William Shakespeare was here with us today. <laughs> Stinking the place out. <laughs> so there we go, listener. The poshest British accent is that of well-to-do South East England, and yet the most reviled one turns out to be more authentically English and is the native accent of perhaps our greatest writer. Oh, thanks, Bob. Ah, uh, you're welcome. <laughs> and Murray. Jeremy. Thank your people for keeping Trident. I don't bloody want it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've forgotten about that. 
I ask your people to bear in mind that if they privatise the NHS, we've still got nuclear warheads. Deal. <laughs> Thank you, Murray and Susan. Thank you, audience, and good night, listeners, wherever you are. Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was written by Jeremy Hardy with some boxing additional material by Susan Murray. The cast were Susan Murray and Molly Hunter. The producer was David Tyler. And the programme was a positive production for the elitist Westminster-based Broadcasting Corporation. And next week, Jeremy will attempt to understand citizenship. He'll also examine the state and how to spell surveillance when he speaks to the nation on how to be a good citizen. Richard, Richard Anderson, why do you walk? The same as all ghosts. Unfinished business. John Finnemore's souvenir programme. And with whom is your unfinished business? Well, uh, at the moment, I'm trying to wrap up the Liversedge account. Ah! The award-winning series returns. We've run the numbers, and basically within three weeks, the ark will sink under the weight of opossums alone. <laughs> the Apocalypse. John Finnemore's souvenir programme, beginning tomorrow evening at 10 o'clock in the Comedy Club on BBC Radio 4 Extra. This is BBC Radio 4 Extra. That isn't funny.